want you to leave your Bibles open and pull out your outline so you can uh, take some notes as we think together through what God has to say to us in this next installment of the story of Saul and David. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning as we sit here, having heard you speak, uh, having seen the events that have gone on uh, through your people Israel, we ask that we would see what these mean to us, how Jesus fulfills them, and how in Uh, your word you mold and shape us to be more like your son i pray this in his great name amen well as the story of david and goliath finishes um, we see that goliath's fall shook more than the ground on that day that the philistine hulk got brought to the ground by a prepubescent shepherd boy It shook the whole kind of system of all that was happening because God had chosen David, not Saul, to be king. Everyone started to take notice of David. God loved David because he gave him victory. Um, The people loved David. They started to celebrate. The girls of the towns loved David. We're going to see in a second. It's like they come out like some dancing train and and sing about David. The soldiers loved David. The officials loved David. Saul's own daughter, the king's daughter, falls in love with David. By the way, that's the only time that phrase, fall in love, is used in the Bible. Um, So put that at the side. Um, Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David. It it seems like love is in the air everywhere you look around, right? And it's all about David. It becomes quite an awkward time in Israel, especially for Saul, because David isn't the king at this point. God has anointed him to be the king. He he will be the king in future. And, And Saul's been told that. But at the moment, Saul is the king. So put yourself in Saul's shoes for a second. Who is this young upstart David? Look at him getting all the glory. You prepubescent shepherd boy. You can imagine you'd be feeling pretty angry at him, right? Pretty frustrated. Have a look at uh, chapter 18, verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes as they danced and as they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. You'd be like, yeah, they're singing for me. And David, his tens of thousands. Stupid shepherd boy. You ever had that feeling? <laughs> no matter how much you were loved, if someone's loved more than you, you feel wounded, don't you? You feel like, why, why do they get all the love? It can eat you out and, and you find yourself jealous, envious. Hatred kind of creeps in and, and you're like, I hate that guy. We never experience that, do we? I do. <laughs> That's exactly what happened with Saul. And here we see his envy and how it eats him out, how it takes him over and just makes him go like a crazy man. Um, for Saul... Being a king was his idol. That's what drove his envy. He, he wanted more than anything in the world to be the one the people chose. And he was, remember. He was the king the people chose because he was head and shoulders above all others. But he couldn't carry through. God didn't work through him in that way. It wasn't that Saul simply coveted what David had. He despised David for having it. You know that feeling, don't you? You've got something, it's important to you. It might be your position at work, your reputation, uh, some marks that you've got, something that's important to you, and then some young punk comes in and beats you, 
takes your record, takes your spot, takes the limelight, and you just get angry. But more than that, you want to do evil. You want to do wrong. You don't just want to get what they have back. You want them to suffer. It's what we call envy. And this is exactly what's going on here with David. And the reason is because he's put being king as his God. And when you think about it, when we get bitter like that, it's kind of crazy because we get bitter at God and we get angry at this other person. And, and it's kind of like we forget that God is the one who's given us everything. We're like, how dare you, God, let that other guy in my work get a better position or a better pay rise than I have. I deserve it, right? And we get angry at God and bitter at them, but we don't remember that God is the one who has given us all things. Everything we have has come from God. You see it, don't you? You see what your idols are. When your identity is bound up with whatever that thing is, that relationship is, those marks that you want to get, your future, you end up getting depressed and anxious. For me, I feel this temptation with church. It's crazy. It's sick. But when I see other churches around us succeeding, there's a part of me that I need to stop because it's sinful that goes, oh, I don't want them to succeed. It's just wrong. But it's just there within me. Because why? I wonder whether God is telling me, and I think he is, Rowan, is church your idol? Do you love a church that grows more than me? More than other churches seeing people come to know Jesus? It's great how God's word keeps cutting us to the heart. What is your idol? What things cause you to be envious and kind of prick that point to say, ooh, I might love that more than I love God. Either Jesus has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ and everything else is trivial or he hasn't, right? We've been given it all in Jesus. What else could we want that will somehow make us feel more complete than the life he's offered us? Who is your idol? We then get another man compared to Saul. We'd seen last week the comparison between Saul and David, the king that the people chose and the king that God chose. But this week, we get a comparison with a very different man, Jonathan, David's own son. Jonathan is this brilliant example of a godly man, a guy who just has so much right who wants to serve God and put God first. He's a godly man. And what's surprising is he comes from an ungodly father. Saul's a dropkick. Saul Saul just keeps rejecting God. He's all about himself. He just wants to kill David, we're going to see in a bit. He just doesn't obey God at all. But out of Saul comes Jonathan. And I just want to step back for a second. So far throughout 1 Samuel, we've seen all sorts of family patterns. All sorts of things going on. Um, at, at the beginning, in chapter 1 and 2, you had godly parents like Elkanah and Hannah. Both godly parents who, who, who sought the Lord and wanted to serve Him. And they had a child called Samuel, and Samuel was a godly child. Godly parents breed godly child. But then we see that Samuel has some kids, and they're dropkicks. They, 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 they're useless. They just rebel against God. Godly parent, ungodly kids. So you're like, hang on a minute, that doesn't work. I thought if you had godly parents, you'd get godly children. Obviously, that doesn't seem to be the case. And then you get ungodly Saul, 
with godly Jonathan. Seems like whatever else you want to make of this, we are not victims of our upbringing. We are not victims of our upbringing. There is life beyond your parents' mistakes and there is life for your children beyond your mistakes. We don't need to waste our lives by blaming our mistakes on our parents' choices or what they said to us. Here, we are responsible. We're responsible as parents to love our kids and to bring them up in the Lord. We're responsible as humans, as adults, to walk in the footsteps of our Savior, to trust Him, to serve Him, not to blame things on our parents. At some point, we have to recognize the reality that we need to grow up and realize we are responsible for our own choices. Don't go blame shifting. On view here is a godly guy from a schmuck of a dad. (laughs) But if you're anything like me, when Sarah read that passage, I've been looking at it this week, there's just something a little bit odd about Jonathan. I don't know if you felt that. Have a look at 18 verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Or again, look at 2 Samuel one twenty six. Speaking of Jonathan, David says, your, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Now, as I read that, I'm kind of a little bit awkward. Uh, and that laugh may, makes me think maybe you're the same. You think, what's going on here? Like, is this some sort of gay relationship? I've heard plenty of people try and justify same-sex marriages and same-sex relationships as a valid expression of sex the way that God intended it from this passage. Like David and Jonathan had something weird going on. So it's, it's fine. There's no problems here. But the thing is, this is not a gay relationship. This is not a homosexual relationship in this point. The way David loved Jonathan is the same way and the same word that is used in the passage about the way Israel and Judah love David. They weren't having a sexual relationship with David. Um, So we must expand our views and go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? David wasn't gay. If you know anything about what David's about to do in his life, if you've heard anything of Bathsheba, you know he's not gay. You you know that he's a heterosexual male. So what's on view here isn't some weird relationship What's on view is God correcting your and my view of friendship. Because we're going to see in a second that I think we need to be corrected big time. What's on view here is a brilliant friendship. Mates. These guys love each other as mates. But my problem is I can't conceive of a friendship with this deep, deep love that doesn't have somewhere in my head some part of a a sexual expression. You're kind of like, come on, can you really love each other that deeply if if you... not having any kind of sexual feelings towards one another. I think what it shows is that I'm a part of a culture that just wants to sexualize everything. Our culture is just thumping that that sex is the drive for all things. If you love something so much, you'll eventually just want to have sex with it. it, it Just kind of, we live in a sex-crazed world. Sex is the ultimate love. There is no greater love than sex. And that's what the world is thumping out. It's, it's kind of like this teenage mindset that we've all swallowed and gone, yeah, that's, that's the way we think. We think if you're close to someone, there's got to be sex involved if you're that close. And I think you and I live with an incredibly immature mindset. I speak of myself here as well. 
because of our sexed up brains and the culture that we have shouting out around us, we miss out as Christians on being great and godly friends with one another because we're somehow afraid, somehow afraid to express any sort of homophobic kind of feelings because the world says that's all you can do and we've, we've just swallowed this pill. Don't pretend that we're not affected by the world around us. The moment where we read that from Jonathan and we're like, uh-huh, I wonder what was happening here. Boom, guilty as charged. I've swallowed the pill of the world whole. I read a, a blog this week that I think shows really helpfully uh, the effect of a sex-crazed culture on our friendships. I'll read some of it to you. It begins with these words. It feels good to finally make it public. I love a man. It's written by a man. I met this man at college, and over the course of three years, we became the closest of friends. We spent late nights together filled with conversation, both serious and ridiculous. We celebrated victories together and supported one another through difficulties, exams, and relationships. After college, he celebrated with me and my wife um, on our wedding day. He, He celebrated our first child with us. He's been a precious gift to our family, cherishing our children and my wife. We, we built things together. We ran together. We enjoyed God's creation together. He was there for me, there to, to cry with me, there to discuss difficult theological topics, there to pray for me, there to challenge me and encourage me and love me. He, he was, more than anyone else beside my wife, the one who understood and fully empathized with my deepest hurts. He cried with me and Mindy during our miscarriage. He hurt with us for our family. For all these things, and for a future filled with more of this kind of love and joy and Christian brotherhood, I must say, Lord, I thank you for this man I love. There's something right about that, isn't there? Something right about being able to express a a friendship where you deeply care for another. But the problem is that two groups in the world tell us that that kind of love is impossible. The world. If, if, If... we were to go and say to the world, anyone in the street, that we have that kind of love for a man, the world around us would say, oh, that's a homosexual attraction that you're experiencing. But it's not. His claim is it's not at all. It's a lie. But the other group that tells us that this is impossible is the church. See, I think many of our churches have us believe that brotherly love that the Bible encourages must somehow include, you know, going and eating steak together and watching the rugby and drinking beer and looking at women. Like, maybe not looking at women for the, for the church bit. But we think that's what blokey blokes do and we don't talk about that sort of stuff. We, don't, we, don't, we just we grunt and move on. That's a lie. We've sold ourselves out. We're missing out on what God has given us, the gift of one another to stand by one another. We've conceded that type of love to the gay community. We're we're afraid, we're worried we'll be interpreted by the world around us as something wrong. We're worried that maybe it's unbiblical to feel a, a deep sense of love for someone who is a guy, if you're a guy or a girl, if you're a girl. I want to say this is a lie straight from the mouth of Satan. He wants Christian brothers and sisters to feel uncomfortable with truly loving one another. Why? Because then we won't share our hurts with others. We won't be there to support one another like God has made us to be. We'll we'll kind of just go on and do what Satan is enticing us to do. Here's one. Because we've sold out. We've swallowed the view of the world rather than the view of God. 
We need to build these relationships with one another. It's the love of Christ, isn't it? Lay down your life for another, for a brother, for a sister. We're to have relationships like this with each other. Mates who'll be there for one another. The church, it's not some fast food outlet where you pop in on Sundays for a quick feed and then pop out again and you go face the rest of your life. We don't want to be like that. We want to be a church that's committed to one another, that has deep friendships and cares for one another, that's there when stuff goes bad, that celebrates together, that is deeply loving one another. That's what will be happening for all eternity. We'll be deeply loving one another and the church is to be the expression of heaven on earth. How does Jesus summarize the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your brother as yourself. I want to talk to the guys for a second because we're hopeless at this. (laughs) We need to make time for each other. We actually need to um, have mates in church who we can have time together when stuff's hard to be able to talk through things, real time, sharing life's moments, the ups, the downs. We need to be honest with one another. So often we get together and we're like, oh yeah, everything's going all right. We kind of put on a kind of a a front. We don't talk about the the sins that that are grabbing us and pushing us toward walking away or just denying some part of who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to be friends, mates, who turn up. I remember when Sarah and I had a miscarriage um, just before we had Nathaniel. Well, a long way before, but about 13 months. And um, two of my mates turned up the next day. Just Christian mates were there. They didn't say much. They didn't need to. All they needed to do was say, man, this sucks. Sorry. And you know what? They're the guys that I want to walk alongside. They're the guys that have encouraged me, that have challenged me. And the fourth thing that we need to do as mates is make sure we love Jesus more than we love one another. Make sure that we won't just say the easy words, but we'll say the hard words too. And I think this applies to women. You can kind of take this through and apply this to your, your, other, your sisters and how you're caring for one another in, in all these areas. That's why as a church, we put on men's breakfast for guys because we need something, an excuse to talk. We can't just talk. We, we've got to put something on, an excuse to get together and talk about what matters. Um, there's one coming up on the 28th. You might not feel like you need to go, but I need you, <laughs> and the other guys need you. Um, I think, as I've been reflecting on this, I haven't led church well in this. I haven't, I haven't led us as guys well in sharing my life. I think I've been too busy trying to do church and not busy enough loving the men of church. I need to say sorry, guys, for that. I felt convicted from God's word in this relationship that we see with David and Jonathan. This matters. These guys have something that we've given up, that we need to care for. And I'm not saying you've got to be best mates with everyone. It's not some weird cult place. You're like, whoa, these guys are like hippie commune. No, I'm just saying we actually be mates, share life together. You know, be there when we need to tell our mate to pull their head in, that they're wrong, or to say, no, you're right, keep going. Don't walk away from Jesus. Let me pray for you. <laughs>
But for Jonathan, David is more than a mate. He is a mate, absolutely. But he's more. He's his Messiah. He's promised king. The man, as you think through envy, that's most likely to, to resent David should have been Jonathan. King Saul was the king. Who's the crown prince? Jonathan. Who would inherit the kingdom? Jonathan. But what he does is he gives up his throne because he recognizes who David is. He recognizes who God is making David. He recognizes God's plan for David. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 18. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow and his belt. This is such a phenomenal picture at this moment where the crown prince hands over the kingdom to the one to whom God chose, the king whom God had plans for. See, it reminds me of another king. We meet him in Philippians 2. The king Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here, Jonathan saw the world like Jesus did, through God's eyes. That God had a plan and God's plan is good. And that he would follow through with that plan. The eternal son hands himself over to the creation. Except unlike Jesus, Jonathan wouldn't be lifted up, at least not on his own. He wouldn't be raised from the dead like we'll see on Easter Sunday, Jesus was. He he wouldn't be found guiltless like Jesus was, at least not on his own merits. So the way Jonathan would be lifted up was by handing the throne to David and ultimately to David's great-grandson, Jesus, by saying, you need to be king, Jesus, and not me. Jonathan's actions here, I think they're great. They're, They're almost exactly the same as the actions that it takes for us to become Christians. Isn't that what we need to do? If you're sitting here today going, what is this? Who is this Jesus? Well, how do I become a Christian? Why would I want to do that? Here, Jonathan does what Christians need to do. Give up the throne. Give up the right to rule your life and give it to another king, a better king, God's chosen king. At this point, you kind of go, why would he do it? Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes for a second. Why would you do that to David? Why would you hand over the throne that was rightfully yours? Well, because he'd recognized who David was, who the Savior was. He'd seen God's choice. He'd seen God's king. It was obvious. Have a look at the the verse just before this in chapter 17. And get this mental image, okay? Um, Chapter 17, verse 57. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Is there a greater picture of victory over Israel's enemies than that? The Goliath, the incredible Hulk, who no one was, was, was bold enough to go out, go out to except this little shepherd boy. They're holding the head of the enemy. Victory. Finished. God has won and God used me to do it. It was obvious to Jonathan, this young boy was God's chosen king. He'd done something that Jonathan couldn't do. 
And so he takes off his robe, his tunic, his sword, and gives it to David and says, you're the one God has chosen. On Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate an event which changed the face of the planet and the shape of history. The resurrection of Jesus, the conquering of death itself. Like David stood there that day holding Goliath's head, so Jesus stood after death, having conquered it. Death has been wiped away. The head of death is in Jesus' hands. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Resurrection has proved that death no longer has a hold on Jesus. Here is God's king. Here is God's savior, not from some foreign enemy, but from death itself. I can't do that. I can't beat death. I will die. There is no way I can face that foe and come out on top ever. (laughs) But Jesus did. And once you see him for who he really is, that he has conquered death and offers us life, that he's God's chosen king, then the only appropriate response, the only logical response, is to strip off my pretend robe, take off my pretend crown and stop pretending to be king. Stop pretending that I run my life, that I can, I can deal with life's problems, that I can deal with my relationship with God and recognize that Jesus has done it for me. The real king is here, Rowan. Stop pretending. Get off the throne and serve Jesus. Jonathan is a model for how we are to respond to the Savior we know as Jesus. Are you still on the throne? Have you seen the amazing power of Jesus? Death's head is in his hand. He has won victory. This is the king I want to serve. Well, that's exactly what Jonathan does. He makes David the Messiah he is. And from this moment on, Jonathan would never be ashamed of David, just like we should never be ashamed of Jesus. He would speak up for him at massive cost. He would speak out for David, even when it meant disappointing his earthly father or turning his father into an enemy. And if anyone had a tricky situation to deal with, surely it's Jonathan. His dad, the king, wants to kill his best mate, the one whom he loves, the one who he wants to spend time together, to encourage, to walk together in. And his best mate just happens to be the Messiah, (laughs) the promised king, the one God would choose. Like, how do you deal? Who do you serve? How does that work? But listen to what Jonathan says in chapter 20. Verse 32, he comes to his dad, knowing of his dad's plot to kill um, David. Jonathan says, why should he be put to death? What's he done? Jonathan asked his father. See, respectful. He actually goes to his dad and has this conversation. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. You know what gets me here? What I love about Jonathan, what grieves him the most isn't that his dad just tried to kill him, but that his dad won't recognize the Messiah. His dad won't treat the promised king as he is. That grieves his heart more than anything else, more than his dad trying to kill him. That's someone with their priorities right, isn't it? Who grieves at people's inability to accept Jesus as he really is. I still remember the, the kid's name. It was year two. We were in the playground. I can't even remember what he said, but he said something incredibly rude to me about my mum. 
And it just made my blood boil. I don't know if you've ever had that sort of experience. Someone insults your mum and you're like, you are gone. I was fuming. I'm like, nobody uh, talks to me like that about my mum. It's like that scene from, uh, is it Back to the Future? Nobody calls me chicken. Anyway, nobody calls me chicken. No one speaks to me like that about my mum. I remember how angry I was. I can see the look on his face for speaking so rudely to my mum. What Jonathan shows here is an allegiance even greater than a family bond. Where is your allegiance? Someone who matters more than his mum and dad. His Messiah, his King. If Jesus is God's promised King, if, if death itself has been defeated, then he must come first. He must remain first over and against every other love in your life and in mine. To my shame, I'm so often more offended when someone insults my mum than my Messiah, my dad than my deity, my kids than my king, and my spouse than my saviour. We should be jealous for our family and for their reputation and for their honour, but never above our king. Jonathan has it right. The Messiah is who we serve This is a godly man who loved his dad even when his dad was a dropkick, but loved his Messiah even more. Well, throughout the next four kind of chapters, we see Saul's crazy journey to try and kill David. Uh, It's kind of like six attempts throughout the the next four chapters to, to kind of wipe him out. You see the effects here of envy and jealousy. I heard someone once say that of all the sins in the world, all of them, bar one, give you some sort of gratification straight away. You kind of, you do it and you're like, oh, I kind of liked it, but then soon after it turns bad, except for envy. Envy is awful from the beginning. From the very start, you're wanting to just do evil. It's kind of eats you out and makes you get worse and worse and worse. And this is what happens here with Saul. He's come to know that Samuel's words from God would come true. Saul would lose his kingship and he can't bear his idol being taken. But what we see time and time again throughout this passage is that God protects David. God has a plan for David. He's chosen him for a task. And he does it through, he protects David through Jonathan, um, through Michael, Saul's daughter, But I want to read this last little account for you in chapter 19 and just see how God protects David. Chapter 19, verse 18. When David had fled, he he made his escape. He went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men. And they also prophesied. Saul was told about it. And he sent more men. They prophesied too. (laughs) Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. You can kind of get Saul's like, what is going on here? I want to smash this guy. So finally, verse 22, he himself left for Ramah. And went to the great system at Seku, and he asked, Where is Samuel and David? Over in Noth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Noth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Noth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. 
He lay that way all day and night. This is why people say he's Saul among the prophets. God cannot be mocked. You can try all you like to push aside God's plans for David to become king, but it's not going to happen. He wants Saul to hand over the kingship and he's not going to do it on his own will. But what happens here? His robes come off. Now, it doesn't actually get into his heart. He doesn't actually ever treat David as he should. Maybe until the very, very end. There's a little glimmer. But we see here that God protects David. That's the clear line, isn't it? The person on view here isn't Saul, it isn't David, it's not Jonathan, it's God. Do you see what happens? Against all the might of the king of Israel, God's plans happen. God provides the way of escape. Sometimes he uses human instruments like Jonathan, but he doesn't need to. God's protection, his salvation, his life, his deliverance come from him and him alone. That makes me think, Can we apply that promise, that confidence that David has that God will bring about his plans for us to us? Like here, David is is very different than you and I. I am not the Messiah. Sarah keeps telling me that. Jesus' job is already taken, Rowan. You don't need to kind of do that. (laughs) You are not the Messiah. David is the Messiah at this point, the one who points forward to Jesus. He's very, very different from you and me. So, Can we apply the promises there to protect him? You read through the Psalms. So many of us love those Psalms where the psalmist is talking about how in hard times and through hardship when the enemies are encircled, that God protects, that God loves, that he will bring us through to the end. Do you know who the psalmist usually is? David. And he's talking about this situation. Saul pursuing him, wanting to kill him, wanting to take him out. And he keeps coming back to know, God, you are good, your promises are true. Because the promises were for him to be the anointed king. Well, in some ways, we can't apply this to us because we aren't the Messiah. But in others, we can because God has a plan for every single person's life. He's got a plan for you and for me. It's impossible for anyone or anything to derail that plan for you. Impossible. I can guarantee you it's not to be the Messiah because that role's already taken But God does want to use us and God will use us in the way he wants. Here's a line that I want you to ponder this week. Christians are immortal until their work is done. Christians are immortal until their work is done. God's plan for you will happen. And you, nor the person next to you, nor any other power that be cannot win over you. Do you see the confidence that brings us? Great confidence. Such freedom. I want to run. I want to serve with all his energy, Paul says, which so powerfully works within me. I'm confident of God's love because I've seen it on the cross. I've seen the promises that he's offered me to to save me and to pay the price for my sin. I've seen his call to tell others about this news about Jesus, to keep trusting Jesus to the end, to make God my king in everything. And so here is God's plan. We're free to run, not to try and buck against God's plan, but to say, I want to serve you with all my heart. 
I want to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to speak of him as my king, no matter what anyone else says to me. And I'm going to do that all the days of my life, no matter what happens. Whether I live another 40 years or another 40 seconds, I'm going to use that time to serve him. Do you see that freedom? Because God is in control. I was speaking to two friends this week. Uh, Both of them, one was a lecturer at uh, the Bible college I went to. Uh, The other one was a mate of mine that went through Bible college, both in in full-time paid Christian ministry. Um, One overseeing all the students at a Bible college. The other one uh, starting a new job at a new church as a senior pastor. Um, One of them has a chronic pain in his foot. They've had an awful last few years. He was a pastor of a church where the senior pastor committed adultery and he found out and he had to kind of go through and work through all that stuff. Just smashed his family. At the same time, they had a baby born that was 28 weeks Uh, at 28 weeks um, and she's alive and great and well but just really hard last few years he's just kind of gone to this new church after having a year out of ministry because of just the stress and he gets there and he's still got this chronic pain in his foot that's come about in the last two years always there it hurts to stand Um, his job while he was working while he wasn't doing ministry he's a pharmacist on his feet all day he's just like why does this happen he gets there and he gets shingles and i'm just like man (laughs) I sit there going, wow, it's been a hard time for you, hey. And then I spoke to the, the um, Bible college lecturer, and he, I just asked him it was a conversation about something else that was coming up, and I said to him this week, how are you doing? He said, actually, it's been pretty rough. I've got chronic pain in my face. It's just consistently hurting. I'm like, that's awful. Uh, he's like, yep, and, and then um, it just hasn't been a great year. Uh, it hasn't been a great year. My daughter's very, very sick. Both of them said words like this at the end of that conversation. But God's good all of the time. He has a plan and he's using us as he wants to be, us to be used. And so we'll serve him. See, they get that God is in control. They get that no matter whether it's in the midst of being hammered from your enemy like Saul is at this point. Saul doesn't see that he's through the victory. Saul's in the middle of the battle and he seeks God's protection and God protects him. God doesn't promise that it will be easy, but he does promise that his plans will always happen. We are not the Messiah, but Jesus is. And he's won the battle for us. Death has been defeated. Life has been secured. And we have a phenomenal freedom to love one another because Jesus is king. To love the king because he's defeated death. And to share the news of this king with the world around us. Because that victory will last forever. It makes me want to run. Don't you? Why don't we pray that we would be as a church, people like Jonathan. Who recognize the Savior as he is. And serve one another so God might be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, this morning it really is exciting to see the way that you fulfill your promises we admit that so often we we keep climbing back up onto the throne of our lives we keep putting other things as the god that we serve rather than you show us where we do that help us to ask our friends how they're going at serving you not to be superficial but to love in a way like david loved jonathan and jonathan loved david but lord we ask that through all of this we would treat your Messiah as he is. That we would see uh, through us, you bring people to know you and to be secure in you. 
So this day we ask, Lord, that as we come up to Easter, that you would bring people to know you this Easter. They would see the hope and the security that comes with trusting in your King. We pray this in his almighty name. Amen.